Welcome back, everybody. I'm one of your hosts, James DeBrooker. Uh, with me, as always, is... Megan Griffin. And with us is a very special guest. We have with us Amanda Surowitz. Hello. Uh, who attended Agile Writer Con 18 with a guest of honor, one Lanny Serum. And we have brought her on to discuss her experiences with that on this a very special episode <laughs> of handbook for handbook for mortals uh because it's a very special episode i want to make clear that drugs are bad oh my and, god and don't drink and drive and don't take caffeine pills i know that you can get them over the counter but they're very bad um so i think those are all the very special messages i can think of megan do you have anything before we get to the meat no, I think you covered it like a 90s sitcom. We're good. Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, so, Amanda, uh, I don't think I've told a lie yet. You did, in fact, go to AWCon <laughs> 2018, right? Yes, I did. In stately Virginia. And um, before we start talking about that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, kind of like your background with the writing and publishing side of things. Okay, well, um, I've been working on the same novel manuscript, I think, since I was a sophomore in college. Um, I went to Savannah College of Art and Design and majored in writing, graduated 2015. I've been doing journalism-style writing before that. I did you know, the student newspaper in high school, and then in college, I was chief copy editor for student media, so I've got a strong journalism background. That's kind um, of amazing, especially at SCAD. Yeah. That's, and, that's really awesome. And then I actually worked for SCAD afterwards, after I graduated. I was in their PR and marketing department. And now I work for a company that manages several tourism websites and publishes some tourism magazines, and I write for them. Very cool. Do you get to travel for that? No, because it's all in the uh, low country area. So we're uh, all Savannah, Hilton Head, Beaufort, Bluffton. It's all within an hour of each other. Very cool. Very easy life. Mm -hmm. um, so from the quick read I did of, um, I don't know if it was your Twitter or the actual blog post, but you were not originally planning to go to this conference until uh, guest of honor, Lanny Sarum was kind of. It was not necessarily when she was announced on Twitter. It's kind of when it blew up. Someone reposted it finally, and it kind of took over. Yes. The the way I even found out about the conference was um, a writer that I follow who's part of, I believe he's part of the James Rivers Writers Association, which is part of the Agile Writers okay. branch, I think. And um, he was upset about Lanny going to this conference and I looked at it and I was like, oh, it's in Richmond. That's an hour away from where my parents live <laughs> and registration is less than a hundred dollars. So this already seemed like a great idea. And then another author who I was very eager to meet, Bill Bloom, was going to be there. So I said, that's all the reason I need to make a last minute <laughs> eight hour drive for one weekend. Very nice. So let's start things on a positive note. Mm -hmm. Um, how was your experience at the convention overall? I loved it. I really did. Um, I was happy to take so many notes, get so much great insight. I was a little unhappy that after two lectures, I decided that I need to rewrite my manuscript again. Oh, no. <laughs> but it, it's all for the better. So I had a blast. Met some okay. really great people. Well, hold on to that unhappiness then, because <laughs> I, I, I want to discuss uh, your experience at how to navigate the New York Times bestseller list yes. by Lanny Sarum. Uh, we have done some legwork in terms of trying to figure out how this all came to pass, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. in part because I have kept myself largely segregated from the entire Twitter blow up about this and my only point of contact has been Megan uh, so I didn't hear about any of this until basically right before we started the podcast so 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 what 
why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, just for my benefit, what gives Lanny Serum the right to host a panel about <laughs> how to navigate the New York Times bestseller list? Well, since I didn't make that call, I'm not entirely sure um, what that was. But the one, who, the person who did make that call, um, he sent me an email over the weekend, and he said... The reason I invited Lanny was because she disrupted the publishing world. She took a different approach to marketing her book. She broke no laws or ethical standards. She only made sure that every sale counted. There are people in the writing community who dismiss writers because of the way they write, publish, or market their books. Um, and he didn't, he didn't want to uh, shun her from any oh. kind of talker appearance. I'm glad that he used the disruption word. Uh, I am also glad that cast has an easy mute function because anytime talks about how X is really going to disrupt Y, I start snickering uncontrollably. <laughs> uh, disruption is not always a good thing and some things should remain quite rupted. Uh, well, so to be fair, when we started this podcast, we did talk briefly about the fact that she's not necessarily wrong and that things like book con or conventions don't necessarily get counted towards any kind of record. Um, and that being said, the New York times list is not a cumulative all collecting information base for books. It's just a newspaper who added extra things to their newspaper. There is no, complete record um i think some they try um i listen a lot to book riots podcast and they talk about how it's just not information that we like the publishing companies have it but we're never going to get it my so. sources are still trying to figure that out <laughs> by the way i'm um, telling you I if she can find anything i'm going to be shocked Okay, we we know that it sold fifty four copies on Amazon <laughs> since August. Um, Did you but, figure out if that was ebooks and hardback or uh, no, no? But that's we're we're, we're navigating away from the the, <laughs> the purpose of this specific episode. We are yes. Um, so you attended the panel, and and what did what was the the prime narrative thrust of the panel on how to navigate the New York Times bestseller list? Uh, well, she started off with, you know, some good-natured attitude toward it, knowing exactly what the general feeling is toward what she did, um, which I did appreciate, but it felt a little bit like her narrative was centered about, how did all of this happen to me? Um, and she did go step-by-step, step. she did kind of bounce around a little bit, which is why the Q&A session afterwards was great. Because she glossed over some areas. Um, but So she does own up to the fact that they, or I, I guess this, I, I'm asking more than stating, um, did she own up to the fact that they took these pre-purchases and then went to a bookstore and tried to buy them specifically from New York Times posting books? Or does she still skirt that she didn't try to do that no she owned up to it and that was actually the question that i asked um that was my first question to her was if her sales from the conventions didn't count then how is it that those sales are what got her onto the new york times bestseller list and from my understanding of what she said was that at these conventions she took pre-orders for the book. Um, there was no exchange of money for the physical book. It was just money for, we'll give you the book. And then instead of getting the copies to mail out directly from her distributor, she wanted to go through the stores that report so that in the end, every sale did count. Now that's interesting because if she's paying retail, then she's getting nothing, really, from Yeah, she did from say sales. that she took 
she took a loss in doing that. Um, she said that it was more important to her that her sales counted. Interesting. Um, I was wondering, I was going to make the comment that the book costs $35 on her website and maybe that had some reason to get some money back. But if she admits she took a hit, that's at least nice. I just don't understand the longevity of this idea. You get on it for one week and then you completely fall off the next. Well, I don't think that was the intention. (laughs) Uh, She did say that, because that was the next question that I asked her was, if all she wanted to do was to make a movie, then why did it matter so much if she was a New York Times bestseller? And she said it had to do with um, approaching investors for the movie and being able to say, here's a script, it ties in with this book. By the way, the book is a New York Times bestseller. And I, I can get that as a major selling point to get what she really wanted, which was the movie. Right. The economics of the book purchasing would really have been better served by a vanity press printing. Uh, And those have really got out of fashion with the Amazon e-publishing program, whatever it's called, and the the barrier of entry to publishing at least an e-book being reduced to zero. I worked at a vanity publishing house uh when i was in college and this book would very much have fit in with the offerings put out by author house there i worked in the quality control department which was uh, not what i expected the quality control people were in charge of making sure that the manuscripts would print on the pages and that was it no actual material quality was controlled but I feel like the whole, uh, but for, I want to be able to say that this movie is based off a New York Times bestselling book, the core idea of the book itself would have been fine with a vanity press where she shells out her money, gets the print run, sells it herself, because she's clearly great at self-promotion, and then makes makes money that way. So it's I, I was just always kind of curious about why the book, as apparently many people of the panel work. Um, yeah. So did she talk about the relationship with Thomas Ian Nichols? I haven't been able to quite figure out, like, I know he's going on all these tours and I know he's apparently going to be in the movie, but did he actually help write the book or Um, did she talk about that at all? She did talk about him. Um, I can't say that I remember if he did do any of the writing. I'm sure that he could have absolutely contributed to it because she did mention that there were a lot of rewrites going on with the script and the book simultaneously. Um, but she she said that how she ended up selling so many at the um, conventions was in part due to his presence beside her. Oh, I'm sure. Because people would come up to him and say, I'm such a huge fan, can I get an autograph? And the conversation turned to, what are you doing next? And he said, oh, I'm going to be working on uh, this film. And by the way, there's a book for it, too, written by Lanny, you know, who's sitting next to him. Do you want to buy the book? And took pre-orders through that system. I mean, I can't deny that it's kind of brilliant. It's just... It's, it's not... I've never doubted the... I just, I just don't want to use the word brilliance. Um, the book industry does have problems. I think everybody kind of agrees with that. But Absolutely. It's this entitled attitude that she has about not owning up to not following any of the rules. I mean, you know, I, I don't think she specifically meant to market this book as YA digging through some past Twitters and stuff, I think it was supposed to be new adult, which it fits in more, I guess, age-wise. Yeah, um, she, did, she did address that. She said that the New York Times assigned the YA label to her book, and um, actually the quote I have from her is, Book World decided it was young adult. <laughs> and if you go off Book World rules, uh, she was talking about how to 
how they classify the audience based on the age of the main characters, which I agree, but since the main character is in her 20s, then that does technically put it in new adult, but right. she said, if you go off of book world rules, then up is meant for 90 year olds, you know, on account of Carl being 90 ish. Uh, no, that's not at all. <laughs> yeah, I, uh. I, I'm hoping that she used that as sort of an exaggerated example. I hope so, too. I'm just glad um, to know that there's a final arbiter out there because you and I have had that debate countless times on what <laughs> constitutes young versus new adult. So I freely submit to the cruel dictates of book world in this matter. I, it's, I mean, from what I've read, because in trying to classify my own writing as young adult or new adult, from what I've read, the distinction is not so much the age of the characters that is a factor, but it's more of the issues that are relevant to the character arc. Oh, that makes more sense. So I do think um, from what I was able to get through of reading Handbook for Mortals, I do think that it does fit more in New Adult. That makes a lot of sense. How far did you get before you, as you diplomatically put it, paused in your reading of Handbook for Mortals? Let's see. Reading straight through, I think I made it through... Chapter zero and chapter one. <laughs> um, but there, there's a very funny writer on Twitter who did a live read of it, and she posted several uh, screenshots of the book as she went. And I think she actually ended up skipping some chapters or abandoning it early because she couldn't <laughs> take it anymore. But the uh, the snaps the snaps that she shared were very entertaining <laughs> I, I, I'm looking forward to being done with the podcast so I can go back and read that because I, I can't in good conscience check it out now for fear that it will pollute my own opinions of the, the subject matter so <laughs> I'll, I'll have to you're, you're not missing much I can tell you that much in our uh, 14 chapters of, of reading thus far <laughs> so how okay when did you were you involved in the whole scandal from the beginning or was this something you kind of came to later No, I heard about it uh, right away. You know, Twitter has targeted me with some writing news. So Same here. <laughs> so I saw it, and I wasn't sure what to make of it. I think that I am one of those people who's a little bit more susceptible to falling for scams. Like, uh, what is it? In the last couple of months, there was that one fiction magazine that sent out emails nominating various people for an award but it was based on a short story that nobody had actually written oh interesting yeah there was a huge scandal surrounding it and the the magazine said that they were unjustly uh what is the word i guess attacked by the twitter community who said that they weren't a real magazine and that it was all a scam and you had to pay to submit and then they whined about having to shut down because of <laughs> the feedback. And I'm still not sure exactly if it was a scam or just really, really poor marketing. I do have to say, though, the Twitter, you don't want to piss off the book genre or book people of the Twitterverse because they uh, there's drama with Angie Thomas today. Um, and most of what I've seen is everybody in support of her. And I'm not entirely sure I know what caused all of it, but all I know is Angie Thomas Appreciation Day is trending today. Not to date this podcast, but... Yeah, the uh, Twitter can be kind of terrifying. It is very terrifying. Um, so was there anything that she talked about that you didn't quite already know? Or was anything new brought to light? Um, well... You know, everything that I had read before just sort of glossed over her um, her feelings about why every book sale should count and her past with the music industry. And I think she did make a very good point that when you buy CDs at a concert, the record sales are signed off by the venue and it counts toward the total of how many records an artist has sold. Interesting. And she said that when she started to look at writing a book, 
and she found that not every sale counted in book world, as she called it. Um, you know, I definitely agree that every sale should count, but I don't think she quite took the right approach to it. No, if she'd come in at, you know, number 10, I, there probably would have been a few people that were like, what is this? But for the most part, it, it's the fact that she came in number one and that YA put it in young adult, which makes sense. They don't exactly have a new adult category. Um, yeah. Well, it's not even that she was at number one. It was more, I disagree that instead of trying to, you know, almost make a public campaign about the issue with book sales and how they're counted, instead of trying to make that change happen, she just sort of, she tried to play by the way the industry works, but then complained about it the whole time and said that it was unfair when a flawed system said that she broke the rules. That is a very good point. Did she talk at all about the process of, of producing the movie itself? I know we're, we're getting a bit far afield because this is fundamentally about the book, but where she's so focused on the movie, I was curious how much she discussed that side of things uh well she did say that um people were wrong in saying that the movie's not going to happen because of the scandal with the book she said that the movie's been funded they're just pushing through the paperwork right now and i think she's optimistic for a 2019 release of the film okay because everything uh, i i saw on twitter a couple days ago that the next book would be be released later this year with the movie and the amount of magic just even from an illusion standpoint that is going to require cgi it just didn't seem feasible so now they're pushing for 2019 that makes more sense and did she mention anything about the publisher geek nation itself because they seem to have dropped off the map and consigned this whole episode to the dustbin of history uh no she really she didn't directly um she mentioned when the script was in its early stages a few years ago she mentioned having a friend who had a small publishing company and she said that she wanted this friend to read her script just to give her feedback and the friend told her that it needed to be a book and when Lanny said that she doesn't know anything about writing books, this person then condensed a 40-page skeleton for a novel based on the script. Oh, I don't wow. know if this person is with Geek Nation or if it's somebody else entirely. She didn't clarify. She does describe that episode in the... Um, well, she, the person in question, I believe, wrote the foreword to the book itself. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say Sky Turner, I think, uh, mentioned something similar. So uh, that actually is fascinating um, and also kind of explains why Sky Turner wrote the forward. I think you had a question about the editing process as well, Megan. Oh, other... yeah. I, I mean, if she didn't mention Geek Nation, did she give out any shout outs to her editors or anything, her publicist? I don't know. I've gone to, I've not gone to any writers conferences. I've gone to plenty of book signings and book conferences and almost within like the first five minutes usually the author has given a shout out to their agent and or editor or publicist like and usually they're there too was there any kind of acknowledgement um not that i can immediately remember but her her panel discussion was at, you know, four o'clock. It was the very last one of okay. the day. So, um, and I didn't write anything down. About no, that, you're fine. So. <laughs> you being on here is amazing for us. So no worries. Um, I just, it, Geek Nation seemed to be attached. And then once the book had the scandal, Geek Nation seemed to die. I'm not saying that the two are correlated because Geek Nation didn't even promote the book at all. And it's not featured on their website. So I think it's two different incidences that kind of happened at once. But I don't know. Every 
published author seems to have some kind of you know, repped by X, publish, you know, contact Y kind of thing. And it either seems that Lanny's going at this entirely alone by this point, or there's been some kind of cutting of ties. And I'm just honestly fascinated by this um, in general and, and really hope I get to meet her at BookCon to ask her questions. Um, I'm really not sure. And, you know, come to think of it in the stuff that I have read about her, I don't ever remember hearing that she had an agent, so I wonder if um, her connection at Geek Nation was a connection she already had to begin with. It's quite possible. Um, I know it's ran by, partially owned by... Claire Kramer. Thank you. First appearance, No Place Like Home, 2000. Okay, thanks. Um, so your article, or your your blog post does mention that she talked about wanting to keep her hands on the screenwriting and all that. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Um, well, she mostly just talked about how the complaints that people have about um, book-to-film adaptations is differences in the script, differences in how scenes appear, um, and also... You know, that's not the actor that I pictured playing this character. <laughs> Which... I think we can all know who we're supposed to be picturing for this. <laughs> she is very specific with that. Even in the in your blog post, you mentioned actors who look like Richard Nixon. Um, I can confirm that we get to that level of specificity <laughs> with certain cameos. I mean, she she wants. Uh, I was about to say Han Solo because the trailer came out today. She wants Harrison Ford to play Charles. I mean, he looks just like Hans. Or God, I keep saying Han Solo. He looks just like Harrison Ford. Well, I present mean. day Harrison Ford, or <laughs> we were debating no that Ford. if he had the earring no or not. <laughs> I, I, I no idea. Well, can you imagine if she had a character? who looks like Kevin Spacey with the intention of having <laughs> Kevin Spacey play the role. And now with what's Well, at this him, point, he'd be a pretty inexpensive get. You gotta, <laughs> I mean. Wow. Please don't. Well, I'm just saying. Be, that might not be a decision that she has the power to make in the end. Which yeah. was the other thing or question I had in the back of my mind is how much say is she going to have? I, am willing to believe that the film is already funded if only because if it hasn't been funded we would have seen a kickstarter for it at this point oh that i can understand um yeah i mean people do their own screenwriting um you know gone girl was was done by the author i think their first willy wonka was done as well but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you have casting um, even I, like amusingly so where authors will have their Twitter bios saying like XYZ knows has no casting decisions um, mm -hmm. you know so I am curious how much her hand has been negotiated because I don't think most authors get a lot of say and when they do it's or when they try to it's like the E.L. James whole Fifty Shades of Grey blow up between her and her first director and um, all that crew that I don't think returned. So Well, sometimes it works out because uh, Catherine Stockett, um, I had the opportunity to talk to her a few years ago when she came to Savannah for the film festival. And she said that she wrote the role of Minnie in the book, specifically with Octavia Spencer in mind, um, if the book ever became a movie. So she made it a stipulation with, uh, you know, with the people who were in charge of the movie that Octavia Spencer plays Minnie. Oh, That's, cool! That had to happen. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I know Scrivener. I don't know what writing program you use, but Scrivener has like a corkboard side where you can basically cast your your book um, and put pictures so that you can, you know. I don't know. I use it so I can reference back to be like, oh yeah, that's right. This character is supposed to be a brunette. Why do I keep using redhead? <laughs> so, so did did Lanny have any solid advice for 
young budding writers wishing to navigate the New York Times bestseller list on their own? Well, she she did say something that I have been thinking about. Um, it was her parting words. Um, she said, just because you don't like something doesn't mean other people won't. So just be careful what you say. Support your fellow writers. And I kind of developed a bit of a reputation for being very... Um, we'll say mean in my critical reviews. <laughs> um, in fact, when Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie first came out, um, everybody in the, uh, this was with student media, everybody looked to me and said, please, you need to write the review for this because oh, of how no. mean your reviews are. <laughs> I, I actually have some concerns about your Oculus review, but we can talk about that off mic. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> but um, so I do feel bad sometimes knowing that I can be very harsh in my opinions, but I make my peace with it by saying that I'm critiquing the work and not the author usually, which is why I had to go back and edit my blog post about Lanny at AWCon because I realized I was making some comments about her um, and, you know, in a few years or whenever she writes the next book, maybe that one is going to be awesome. And maybe she will have better, more approved methods of marketing it. <laughs> I, I am not unfamiliar with the process by which one divorces the work from the person who created the work. At the same time, in a situation like this, where the author is out there continuing to make things difficult. It is incredibly challenging to critique the work without critiquing the author in this specific instance. I I'm have sure that's going to be extremely difficult too if uh, the plan remains that she plays the main character in the movie. Oh. Um, it's going to be very, very hard to separate every aspect of this. <laughs> the the whole writing the book in parallel with the screenplay or writing the book at the same time that she's working on the movie reminds me of, of all things, uh, something from the making of Tommy Wiseau's The Room, where he was shooting simultaneously on film and on digital. He he had this jerry-rigged camera setup where he's shooting the movie on both cameras simultaneously. And it reminds me of that on both the intensely personal nature of the work itself and the ill-advised attempt to get it done I, I i don't see how the movie is going to work um i also don't know who else they would cast as aid frankly it's such a it's such an author insertion character that i do think that lanny serum is the only person to do it justice for good or ill so i don't know i think so because from what i read um i i would be confident in believing that there's much to zade's character that is still in Lanny's head and not on the page. So I'd be willing to see how she portrays the character because I maybe the character on screen actually works better than on page. If this was meant to be a movie in the first place, it could be that's where it's supposed to be. I think that it would actually strengthen the narrative because there's no way, unless you're David Lynch's Dune, to get as much internal monologue on the screen as is in the book so you'll avoid ideally you'll avoid a lot of the situations where i'm reading a piece of the book and i go what slight of the authors is this addressing like <laughs> at, at, at what point was she wronged by a cyclist or a guy named riley or no we I, like riley it's drew Oh, it's Drew. Okay, a guy named Drew. Or a hapless employee at the pretzel god in the mall or something like that. It's 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 there's a lot of stuff that 
even if you just filmed the action as described on the page would be more digestible simply because you wouldn't get the strangely vengeful subtext (laughs) in it so i don't know mostly i hope the movie never comes out because if it does then we're gonna have to review the fucking thing yep we're gonna have to see it you'll have to come to nyc um I, I agree with what you say. Supporting, you know, your fellow writers and everything is a big thing. Um, I think Jenny Trout put it great. I don't know if you've actually read through her summaries of these chapters. I tend to wait until it's after the chapter that we've done so it doesn't end up coloring uh, what we go over. Um, with the one exception where she breaks down the entire, like, makeup that Zade has, which is like $12,000 worth of makeup. But she talked about why she went after or did the chapter by chapter slam of E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey. And that's because E.L. James is very snide towards the Twilight fandom and acts like she's better than that, despite the fact that everybody knows that this is a Twilight fan fiction. Wait, what? And let me finish. Um, and there was another book that she started. I think it's called After... Um, that started as a Watt Press, Wattpad book. Um, and she did a few chapters. And it was like the more and more she was reading this book and learning about the author, the more and more she realized that this author is like an amazing person and like just so happy natured and go luck. Good, you know, it, it didn't feel right going after an author that genuinely was engaging with her fans and seem to be genuinely good and that's why I sleep at night knowing because I've interacted with Lanny a little bit on Facebook um, when she went around posting in every writer's group the same monologue trying to get support um, and vent and all for that but the stance of like I did nothing wrong rather than just owning up to I did not, I, I stand by what I did, but I wish I had done it in another nature or a better way. Like you said, taking to social media and talking about the things that are wrong and getting support and, you know, she doesn't really have the support of a ton of writers because of how she's gone after Angie Thomas. And it's interesting that she says that, but I think it is a great message to take away. Mm-hmm. She did also um, bring up something that I think she's perfectly justified in asking the question. Um, Because somebody had asked if she was going to end up suing the New York Times. Oh, good lord. Um, And she she cited um, the Wikipedia page for the New York Times bestseller list because she's now an entry under the section that says controversies. Oh, good lord. Okay. And, well, again, this is a very legitimate argument that she had. She was talking about the 1983 controversy when William Blatty had sued the New York Times for $6 million, claiming that his latest book, Legion, had not been included to the list due to either negligence or intentional falsehood, saying it should have been included due to high sales. And I am reading from the Wikipedia page. And... The Supreme Court declined to hear the case, so the lower court ruling stood that the list is editorial content, not objective factual content, so the Times had the right to exclude books from the list. And Lanny said that when she was notified that her book was pulled from the New York Times list, um, the message she got was very brief and very vague and said that basically the numbers don't add up. And she, she has questions about if in 1983 you claimed that the list is editorial, not objective factual content, then why is it you're telling me I'm not on the list due to objective factual content? There I think is that's a, a legitimate question that needs to be answered. I, I was checking, uh, seeing if I could fi- parallax the Wikipedia article a little bit, um, and 
That is an accurate Wikipedia quote. Uh, and also there is a post on GaryLindberg.com. Do you trust the NYT bestseller list? That gets into a lot of the um, the concerns had by many with the list. And it dates from 2016, which I believe predates this entire controversy. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there was the whole debacle that was not as public... Um shortly after this, this the handbook for mortal one where a publishing company refuses to um allow their books to be on the new york times now because they feel that the new york times is too biased towards conservative uh, conservative conservatively political books um because they swear that they i can't remember the number but they sold x amount and that they were on every other list but they were not on the new york times list and well they said that they were number one on every other list. They weren't. I, I dug into this quite a bit. Um, and I think they actually were on the New York Times list, but they weren't as high as they wanted to be. So it, at the end of the day, I think this question or this whole thing brought up the question more of, do we care what's on the New York Times bestseller list? Well, I think we tend just because it is the New York Times bestseller list and it's by the New York Times. I mean, you know, I went to college for a degree in writing and the whole focus was to get published, to get a job, getting published. And the, you know, the goal was to be a New York Times bestseller. It was to work for the New York Times. And my senior year of college, one of my professors actually hooked me up with a little consultation with somebody who edits at the New York Times just to review my resume. That's really cool. It is cool. I know that the New York Times is a big deal, but I don't want to work at the New York Times, unfortunately. (laughs) It's just mostly just because I don't want to live in New York. Completely understand. It's no offense. I no, no. <laughs> no, it is cold. I understand. It's just, it is a big and important newspaper um, and now an online publication too and with its social media, but it's just not my goal in life. And that's perfectly fine. Um, so did we touch up on everything? I'm trying to think. I have I have asked all the questions that I can think of. Um, Amanda, where can people find you online? Well, wait before we oh. hit that. Is there anything else that you that we've missed that you wanted to bring up? Uh, let me see. I'm checking my notes. <laughs> well, she did actually cite a specific number for the budget of her film. In case you're oh, I am so curious. Yes. She said it's going to be a $17.7 million movie. Oh, good lord. Okay. That seems like a higher number than at first glance, but honestly, that's not too bad of a budget. Um, I am absolutely currently Googling movies with $18 million budgets right now to... You're also um, drumming. Well, I'm scrolling through my list. It's it, Well, the drumming, it provides a sort of driving musical background i'm doing the hollywood hacker thing where like the screen is being projected onto my glasses and it's in the reverse yeah um i can't i i, I can't think of a movie off the, off the top of my head that also has an 18 million dollar budget so um a lot more has been done with a lot less sure so. i mean i think uh paranormal activity was less than a million and um get out was fairly small too so who knows um before we get to plugs we usually like to end the episode with something positive in our life uh, a book a movie music anything positive um and this is going to go up next monday so it'll take the place of a regular episode so amanda anything positive in your life or if you want we can cycle back to you Oh gosh, there's there's all sorts of positive things. Um, I mean, since you talked about how I enjoyed uh, the AWCon in general... Um, you could talk about of, that more. That's fine. I was kind of keeping it to myself, but 
I happened to go up to the table um, where they were accepting pre-registration for RavenCon, which happens in Williamsburg, Virginia in April. Whoa, wait a second. RavenCon? Ravenstone. Yeah, and Williamsburg is where my parents live, so I was excited about it, and especially because um, an author that I'm very excited to meet, um, I believe he's going to be there. But it's the weekend before I was going to go to Atlanta, and, you know, it's an eight-hour drive up to Virginia again. Mm -hmm. But because I happened to talk to the woman sitting behind the RavenCon desk, she did say that if I do decide to go, she would try and arrange a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the author that I'm most excited to meet, and I can't think about meeting him without crying because I was going to go to school for graphic design, and because of one interaction I had with him when I was in high school. It changed my major in college. It changed my life. I'm here now because I happened to read his book. That's amazing. So that's my good news. That is awesome. I hope he shows up. I hope you get your one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I hope so too. 2018 is going to be the year of dreams coming true. That is so cool. Nice. And I cannot wait to watch it unfold. Um, James, what's something good going on for you right now? Um, before I get to that, I, thanks to the help of thenumbers.com, uh, <laughs> list of the budget of ev almost every movie ever made, uh, $18 million is what it costs to make Predator, and $18 million is what it costs to make Amadeus. Now, okay. I don't Both think- Both of those th are 80s movies and take into comparison. Okay, okay, Birdman. Birdman came out in 2014 and cost $18 million. I'll take that. Um, $18 so, million dollars in 1988 is completely different than $18 million in 2018. Maybe the numbers.com takes the time to compensate. Oh, Megaforce was $18 million? Jesus. Um, anyway, um, something good. I would like to uh, ping off something that Amanda said. And that is Legion. I have not read the William Peter Blatty novel, but I have seen the movie based on it. Exorcist 3 Legion. It is directed by William Blatty and it owns. You have uh, George C. Scott facing off against Brad Dorif. It is a remarkably funny movie with some completely bonkers dream sequences. Uh, one of which features Fabio and I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And it has the greatest jump scare in cinematic history. It's the hallway scene, if you've seen the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, watch the movie and pay attention when there's a long shot of a seemingly uneventful hallway. So The Exorcist Three Legion, written and directed by William <laughs> Peter Blatty. Doesn't that scare sort of spoil the jump scare. I was about then. to say you completely like spoil no, the No, because scare. the hallway the hallway shows up a lot, but okay. there's it's it's uh, oh, it's so good that the hallway scene. Mm. <laughs> Chef's kiss emoji. <laughs> um god, okay. This is going to sound ridiculous. I spent yesterday watching Greenhouse Academy, which Netflix has figured out that I have a love of TV shows and movies involving private school kids. Um, I just soak it up. So uh, apparently season two is coming out later this month. It's based on an Israeli show that I'm now trying to find. Um, it is a weird teen private school for leaders. So the school is not actually for greenhouses? No, it's just called the Greenhouse Academy. Oh, okay. Um, which I keep calling Greenwood, but that's the cemetery near my house. So it is Greenhouse. Uh, it is a, in, like I, it's these two kids that their mom dies when her, she's, she's going to space, the rocket explodes. They go, her son wants to go to her alma mater. They both end up there taking the test and passing, and apparently there's also a conspiracy where there, some people are trying to take over the world. So it was very much in my wheelhouse for I'm sick and laying on the couch all day. So I think it's only 10 episodes, and they're 30 minutes long. I recommend. Um, 
Amanda, thank you for coming on. Yes, thank, thank you. you for having me. Um, where can people find you? They can find me at my blog, which is ajswitz.com. You can also Google Amanda Sarowitz. As far as I can tell, I'm the only one. <laughs> um, and you can also connect with me on Twitter at ajswitzy. Um, all of which will be in our show notes if you just want to click on those links. Uh, James, where can I people can find found. you? Uh, at Over the Tabletop Podcast, where my partner and I play and discuss two-player board games with the help of our cat, Solstice. Uh, and I'm actually going to have to record an episode of that here in Two Shakes of Lamb's Tale, so whoopsie-daisy. Um, Over the Tabletop Podcast.Libsyn.com or at gmail.com or on Facebook at Over the Tabletop. Um, that about covers it. Uh, Megan, what about you? Uh, I host two other podcasts, Judging Book Covers uh, Podcasts. We're back on Sunday with Stephanie and I talking about The Power by Naomi Alderman and Fabulous Retellings. Uh, we are at the end of 12 Dancing Princesses, so come enjoy our last episode uh, where we talk about that. Um, as for this podcast, we are on Facebook and Twitter at Handbook Podcast. You can also join our Facebook group, which is a handbook for fabulous, whoops, a handbook for judging Fabulous Retellings uh covers i really need to rename that um we will be back next week talking about chapter 15 which i think is the longest chapter in the book Fuck. <laughs> um amanda again thank you so much and um we look forward to connecting with you again yeah thank you so much this is great thank um, you best of luck in your uh publishing journey i uh, can't wait to see your book when it comes out yeah. Thank you. I hope it's good. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. Hold on. Give us a give us a tight five on the book you're working on. If you're comfortable. If you with want that. to. You do not have to if you don't want to. Sure. Uh, the title I'm working with right now is The Thieves of Traska, and it is a young adult fantasy adventure about a runaway and an ex-soldier who escape from jail and then try to scrape by on the streets and they have to join one of two warring criminal organizations in the city. Nice. Ooh, nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, that about wraps it up for this episode then. Um, until next time, I remain for my sins, James DeBrucker. And I'm Megan Griffin. Bye. Bye. Bye.